This is Diaspora Dialogues podcast series, and I'm Helen Walsh, DD's president. We produce a number of events across the country, including onstage author interviews and panel conversations, and we record them in order to make them widely available. In this next episode, which we recorded in Ottawa, we looked at representation in YA. Kidlit and young adult fiction now account for 40% of the market, but too often young readers open up a book and they can't see a character that looks like them and they can't relate to the narrative being shared. If you're an educator or you're a parent or you're a writer or a book editor, you're really going to want to look at this wide-ranging conversation about representation, including children's lit and YA authors from both sides of the border in Canada, the U.S., as well as agents and publishers. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Idil Musa, and uh, I work here in Ottawa for CBC News, just a few blocks away. This panel is called Writing the Future, Kid Lit and Young Adult. So that is going to be the topic of the day. And we're joined uh, today by uh, writers and also people that are in sort of the publishing industry, both here in Canada and the US. So we've got that dual sort of perspectives. Imagine as a child walking into a bookstore and not seeing any covers with characters that look like you or finding any stories that reflect your experience, language, or reality. For many of us growing up, that was just the case. But luckily, things are starting to change, and we're hoping that they'll change even faster. Uh, as a society, we know that the love of reading and literature in children and young adults is critical, but too often young readers can't find characters that are like them. Publishing a diverse range of stories for young people is good for everyone. It helps young readers open their minds to the world around them. It helps writers from diverse backgrounds who want to tap into the fastest growing market in publishing. And of course, it's good for publishers who want to capitalize, obviously, on that demand. So today we've come together to talk about a couple of things. Uh, first, we want to talk about some of the structural challenges that prohibit diverse writers from breaking through. So we want to have a conversation with writers who've done it to find out how they've done it and maybe perhaps some of the walls that they keep hitting up against. And we want to know how it's different from for writers down south. So is it any different for the US writers? Uh, that kind of thing. So let me introduce some of the people on the stage today. In no particular order, although the person I'm going to introduce first is wearing a pretty amazing hat. <laughs> I wonder who. <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> Latrice L. McKinney, who writes under the name L.L. McKinney, is a poet and active member of the Kidlit community. She's an advocate for equality and inclusion in publishing and the creator of the hashtag What WOC Writers Hear. That's women of color. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you about that later. Okay. She spent time in the slush by serving as a reader for agents and participating as a judge in various online writing contests. A Blade So Black is her debut novel. Welcome, Latrice. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for having me. Tochi Onyabuchi's fiction has appeared in Asimov's Obsidian, Omanana, and is forthcoming uh, from Tor.com. Harper Collins and Razorbill, which is an imprint of Penguin Young Readers Group. 
His nonfiction has appeared in Nowhere Magazine, the Oxford University Press blog, Tor.com, which is, if you haven't heard about it, a science fiction fantasy website, and the Harvard Journal of African American Public Policy, among other places. His NAMO Award-nominated debut young adult novel, Beasts Made of Night, was published by Razorbill in October 2017, and quickly... After that, its sequel, Crown of Thunder, was released a year later. The NAMO Awards are hosted by the African Speculative Fiction Society, which is a community of writers, editors, and publishers, as well uh, from the African science fiction and fantasy community. He also holds a BA from Yale, you might have heard of it, um, an MFA in screenwriting from Tisch, a master's degree in global economic law from the Institut d'Etudes Politiques, and a JD from Columbia Law. No big thing at all. Mm-hmm. Welcome, Toshi. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> really, you should get out. I don't think my bio is as long as yours. <laughs> <laughs> from the age of six years old, Nadia L. Hahn began writing stories, drawing, and making books. Her first two books, Music and Media, in the Sankofa series, uh, were published by Rubicon Publishing in 2015. Her award-winning first picture book, Malika's Costume, was published in 2016, and its sequel, Malika's Winter Carnival, in 2017 by Groundwood Books. Those are beautiful books, by the way. So well illustrated and told. Nadia was one of six black Canadian writers to watch in 2018. We're watching you. Yes. (laughs) Very closely. And the first SCBWI Canada East Rising Kite Diversity Scholarship recipient in 2018. By the way, that acronym stands for the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. Nadia is an elementary school teacher in Toronto and has taught early years music in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. She's also written a nonfiction picture book about Jamaican poet, performer, and playwright Louise Bennett Coverley, who's otherwise known as Miss Lou. That's great. And she's also currently working on a young adult novel and a play in her third Malika book. Welcome, Nadia. Thank you. Zoraida Cordova was born in Ecuador and raised in Queens, New York. She's an award-winning author of the Brooklyn Bruja series, which follows the trials and tribulations of three sisters who come from a long line of powerful witches. That's pretty cool. (laughs) You downplayed yourself a little bit. That's pretty cool. She's also written the Vicious Deep trilogy. Her short fiction has appeared in the New York Times best-selling anthology, Star Wars, From a Certain Point of View, and Toil and Trouble, 15 Tales of Women in Witchcraft, and she's currently working on her next novel. Of course you are. You've written nine yeah. You're 31. <laughs> Take a break. Thank you. <laughs> I can. Take a vacation. <laughs> Next year. Like, that's, that's incredible. That's what you say. I can't finish a croissant. Okay. (laughs) It's not about me. (laughs) Carolyn Ford has been at Westwood Creative Artists since 2005 and has has been a shareholder in the agency since 2010. Westwood is one of Canada's oldest literary agencies, and I believe it's located in one of my favorite buildings in Toronto. Are you guys in the Chelsea shop? Yes, we are. (laughs) It's beautiful. (laughs) I grew up on Beverly Street. The Chelsea shop, I would walk by it, and I would sometimes think to myself, 
I bet like that's the kind of building that like Charles Dickens like wrote his books in. It is so yeah. quaint. That's the great. windows and beautiful. If you're ever in Toronto, get out to, to get out to that area. I think it's near Sussex and it's Huron. Sussex and Huron, yeah. And wow. people often think it's a bookstore, but it is absolutely a gorgeous building. They say no. No. <laughs> we're going to find out how but writers come over, we'll let in. you in. Yeah. Okay, okay. for book tours. We're going we're, we're to talk about that uh, in a little bit. She holds a BA honors in English literature and history from Trent University, and she spent a year abroad in Liverpool, Hope University. She's also earned a postgraduate certificate in publishing sciences from Robert Gordon University in Aberdeen, Scotland, and completed the Simon Fraser University Publishing Intensive Course in Vancouver. She's lived and worked in Japan, Mexico, the Czech Republic, and she's a dual citizen of Canada and the UK. Welcome to our panel. Thank you. And finally, Jen Nock is the senior editor at ECW Press. That's a Canadian book publisher located in Toronto. I'm sure your building is beautiful as I well. I mean, it's fine. I'm it's fine. Uh, <laughs> it has walls uh, and a ceiling. Uh, like, we own it. So okay, that makes so it really special in Toronto. You go, girl. Yeah. You go. That publishing, uh, ECW started publishing in uh, 1979. In 74. 74. That's true. Okay, because it's at 79 in the thing, and then that's even better. Mm, and <laughs> now your, your agency's evolved, but I know that ECW stands for Essays on Canadian Writing. Um, you, Jen, you work with authors including Rush drummer Neil Peart. Wow. Famed Canadian editor Douglas Gibson. Uh, you've worked with Catherine Gildner and Anne T. Donahue, who write memoirs. And you're also the co-author of best-selling nonfiction titles yourself, not so bad, for middle, grade, and young adult readers. Everyone, welcome our panel, including Jen. Mm -hmm. Wow, I don't know where to start. Maybe I'll start with Latrice, just because you're wearing the best hat. <laughs> One of many, actually. I have a collection now. Wow, you wear many hats. Yes, don't I do. don't we all though? Come on, let's let's <laughs> you gotta hustle when you are a writer of color these days, let me tell you. Okay, so Latrice, um, your debut novel, A Blade So Black, is a really fresh take on an old classic. Can you describe for the audience what, what, what it's about? So um, it's pretty much Alice in Wonderland meets Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And it yes. both asks and answers the question, what if Buffy fell down the rabbit hole instead of Alice? And she also happens to be black. Yes, she does. Which is amazing. She so is grammar. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you, how long? It took you about six years to write this book? It, I wrote it in two, um, oh, okay. but then it took about six years for it to go from that to being published, um, because it was two years to find an agent, and then after finding an agent, it was two years to find a publisher, and then after finding a publisher, it sold in fall of 2016, and it came out in fall of 2018, so publishing is not a race um, <laughs> by any stretch. Uh, of course, things do happen seemingly overnight or quickly for some people, but that's usually the exception to the rule. And since it's on social media, people usually get discouraged when it doesn't happen quickly for them. It's like, no, 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 like that's five years is the average, my guy. So, you know, don't don't be disappointed if it's you've been at this for a minute. You have persevered. I, I was listening to your interview uh, that you did, a television interview that you did in, I believe, Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And 
one of the things that really stood out for me, I was like, this, you are incredible. You were talking oh. about the amount of times that you've received rejections. Oh, yeah. I stopped counting at 250. <laughs> 250. Yeah. That was just the agents. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't count that. I mean, because editors also reject you as well. So. That's so real. So, okay, so tell me, tell me about that process. What was that like for you to receive rejection after rejection, and to persevere? Well, for one, I had my people. I had found a writer's group. So there were people who understood what I was going through. Because telling my family, they were like, Ann, so? You know, go to school, go to work, it's fine. Meanwhile, you know, I'm like sobbing in my bedroom. Um, so having people in your corner is very important. People who understand what you're going through. And um, the biggest thing I think that got me through that is those 250 weren't all for one book. Um, I collected them over a course of three novels. Alice is my sixth to be written, but my third that I wrote to be published. Um, and I had to be able to let go of those first two. If I hadn't, I wouldn't have gotten Alice. And uh, people ask, if you could go back, would you write Alice first? I wouldn't have been able to, because I couldn't have written Alice without learning what I learned in the process of writing and editing the first two. So always being able to let go and move on to the next story, I think, was something that I lucked out with because I kind of had to because my agent left the business after my first agent left the business. I'm on agent number three, which is also a thing that happens. Um, my first agent left the business after we had started submitting and you can't query that again. So I had to let go and it was terrifying, but it, I am where I am today because of it, so. What would you have told, if you could, looking back yourself back then, what tips would you have given yourself? Obviously, you've learned some really, really important lessons that have helped you obviously persevere and push through. Were there any tricks that you found? I, don't, I wouldn't say there's any tricks because each road to publication is different for every person and different things will work for different people. Like I somehow miraculously wasn't bothered by not hearing things for weeks on end. Because I did other things. I played video games and got mad at that. Uh, <laughs> you know, also very real. <laughs> yes. You distract yourself, you know. It's very cathartic to, like, go on video games and snipe robots when you're feeling very upset. Um, but I would tell her that it is coming. I won't tell you when because that might be discouraging, but just hold on. Yeah. So, Ryder, you were you're, you're nodding your head. Does this does this ring true for you as well in your journey in getting in getting published? Um, I think that there there's very much a journey in the waiting process, and I agree with that. I had sort of a blessed, enchanted road to publication because I came in within the industry. So when I when I was very young and I was um, still in college, I interned at a literary agency, and it was that literary agent who. Um, was my first agent and and sort of pushed me to finish a book um, because I had written a couple of books before, uh, including the first book that got rejected all over the place. But I was also still in high school when I wrote that book, and I was like, I'm going to query this book and send it to real New York agents. Mm -hmm. And and it is a wildly historically inaccurate book uh, <laughs> about the about kind. the about the Salem witch trials, but. 
nothing is historically accurate. Like, I think that somebody was wearing jeans at one point. Was it even in Salem? <laughs> what? Was it even in Salem? It was not in Salem. It was in See? Connecticut. Uh-huh. Yep. It was in Connecticut. I was like... <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. Um, and so that was the very first book. And so after that, I I kept writing, and I finished a book, and that one didn't go anywhere. But then when I, fin- when I wrote my Mermaid series, that was the moment where everything sort of came together, and we, we sold the book in, within a week. Um, and that was because trends in publishing sort of shape how things get bought. So if a couple of... The same week that my Mermaid series sold three other books about teenage mermen sold at the exact same time or were announced at the exact same time. And so for me, it was like serendipity. Everything just sort of fell together at the exact moment. And I, I don't think that, I don't think that I would ever want to go back and say that I want to publish the very first book that got rejected because I was a different writer back then and I would never have gotten to the place where I am. I, I believe that, that if if that had been the case. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, Jen, I, I think you're you've tapped into this whole trend thing. Mm-hmm. So, being in the industry, how much do trends affect you? Do they at all? Do you guys even care? Is that in your mandate? They affect what we don't publish a lot of the time because it's very hard to anticipate a trend and you never want to be trying to chase them because the publishing cycle takes so long, basically at least a year and a half if you had a, your book finished before it comes out. You, you can't be, be like, well, we're going to sign up this Merman book because they're still going to be really big two years from now. So sometimes it does happen because people are maybe paying attention to more nuanced things or it's fortunate, you know, and or you have a big success like Twilight and then there's like a period of trying to do Twilight-esque books and then everybody's so sick of it they could die. And so then you actually would be in trouble if you're trying to do a Twilight book um, or even a Gone Girl type book if you're looking at... We, Carolyn and I were talking about this. So we don't really try to chase those trends. In, in Interestingly, in the pop culture nonfiction I wrote, these were largely like biographies of like Taylor Swift, for example. And you have to try to time when the book should come out about Taylor Swift. And when you consider that she's had a career that's now been going on for like 12 years, when was the right time for that book? We did hit it at a good time. Then we published another edition because we were like, man, this girl just keeps writing hits. Um, I hear she's really popular. I hear people like her. I mean, less so now. But um, (laughs) at the time when we were doing this, like five years ago, uh, yeah, so... When you're looking at nonfiction, there's it's easier to pull timing like that, to be like, what are people interested in, especially in the pop culture space? But in terms of fiction trends, whew, uh, not for it, not wise, really. I think it's very difficult. Yeah. You know, on your, um, on your website, it reads, ECW, your publishing house, is entertainment. ECW is culture. ECW is writing. That's sexy. Is it? <laughs> I'm I'm relieved to hear you, you say that. You had me at ECW. I mean, I'm fanning myself. Right oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, essays on Canadian writing wasn't very sexy, so anything was an improvement. Basically, yeah. yeah so you basically catfished us. That's very well done. Well played. Um, so paint me a picture. 
of your independent publishing house. Tell me how you choose the writers and the books to put on the shelves. How does that work? We have a magic eight ball. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> Try again next year. Yeah, we start there. So we publish, we're one of the larger independent publishing houses in Canada. We publish about 50, between 50 and 55 titles a year, which is, is quite a lot for an independent, um, which just means like we're not owned by a multinational overlord. Uh, we're our, our, own, our own company. Um, and so we publish a lot of Canadian authors in the, in the realm of fiction almost exclusively and poetry and things like that that we do almost exclusively them. And then in nonfiction, we're willing to, to take on some Americans, and so we do some of that. In terms of how we choose, um, our, well, what we like to say usually is that we find something curiously compelling. So we're following our own instincts. We're following our things that kind of... that often are a little outside of uh, something that seems more obvious. And you might say, well, nothing is obvious. This is all very subjective. And that is true to a certain extent, except that sometimes I think, and agents know this, there are some books that are just more likely. <laughs> and I will say that as an independent, books that are more likely are also more expensive. <laughs> and independents just don't have the deepest pockets that you get from publishing Jordan Peterson. So uh, we have to we have to kind of look, we have to be, be a bit more creative. We have to maybe look for more niche books. Um, we've done very well publishing in pop culture spaces where there is a diehard following, like a Buffy, like doing back in the day, we did Buffy guides. We do have a very long and successful professional wrestling line um, because people care deeply about professional wrestling and not many people publish for that audience. And then it's just really what we're passionate about. My, our publisher is very insistent that we don't publish by committee. That's simply me as an editor or another editor could come and say, this book is incredible and let me tell you why and let me convince you why we should publish it and why people will read it. And that's enough. There's no board that all has to sign off and uh, agree, which really sets us apart from a lot of other publishers. Yeah. Toshi, tell me about your experience. How many rejection letters have you gotten as a, as a writer trying to oh, man. break through? Oh, I, man, I, I don't know. I don't know the number. I mean, so the interesting thing, Beasts Made of Night was the first book of mine that was published. Uh, it was the 16th novel that I'd written. Wow. And <laughs> I am very impatient, or at least I used to be more impatient as a writer. And so it used to, you know... A normal person, you would look at, you know, they would write a novel, they'd revise it, query it, pick up all these rejections, and then they'd say to themselves, okay, something's not working, how can I fix this novel? How can I make it better? I was just like, I'm gonna write a better novel. <laughs> like, the next book is just going to be better, and then that's going to be the one that does it. And I did that, like, 15 different times. <laughs> and one of the reasons why I kept jumping to new novels was because I would run out of agents to query. <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're quick, and I think I started querying, it was sometime in, in high school. So this was back when they had um, those writer's market 
like yes, guides to literary agents. Too. Yeah. So there oh are these God. like there are these paperbacks that Writers Market puts out every single year that are these like compendiums of literary agencies and and uh, you know small presses and contests and whatnot. It was like going through the phone book. You're just like exactly. Yup. It was like going through the Got other him. pages. Got him. Exactly. <laughs> and so based off of that, I would use that to research what agents I wanted to query for a particular project because I was writing all over the place. It was mostly science fiction and fantasy. But at a certain point, I wrote like a, a Civil War Western, and then I was really into thrillers for a while. So I was writing all these like spy thrillers because I read one John Le Carre book, and I was like, "This is the greatest Sold. thing ever!" Yeah. <laughs> so like, I'm I'm doing all this research and everything, and um, I'm getting better with each book, but you know, for one reason or another, it's just not taking. And I remember there was one, but the Civil War Western. Um, that book alone, I think, ended up picking up probably 40 rejections from agents and small press publishers. And th one of the reasons I, I finally, like, stopped querying it was because there was no one else left to query. <laughs> there was literally no other agents left that were looking at, you know, historical westerns or things of that sort. So I, you know, I couldn't send it to, you know, a romance agent. I couldn't send it to a fantasy agent because that's just rude. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I was just like, I guess I got to write another book. <laughs> that's incredible. You should bring that back. I want to read yeah. that. Oh, yeah. it's... Bring it back around. Things come around. <laughs> Things come around. I mean, um, Dread Nation came out. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it might be time. It might be time. Can I... I, I'm very curious, Tochi, if you could tell me, in your rejection letters, is it just like, sorry, we can't take you, we don't like you, or are you, do you have an explanation as to why it was rejected? Do you have an idea? So that was actually how I gauged my progress in terms of getting better as a writer, was the lengthier the rejection letter, that meant the closer that I'd gotten. Yeah. So in the beginning, it was just form rejections. And in the very beginning, it would be form rejections like based off of the query letter alone. Um, then it became form rejections based off of the partial, which is like, oh, this isn't necessarily what we're looking for, et cetera, et cetera. Then eventually, it would be form rejections off of the full manuscript. You know, in the beginning, it would be, uh, you know, I really liked this, but, you know, I wasn't really vibing with this part, or, you know, the plot seemed a little all over the place, or this isn't really what we're looking for, et cetera, et cetera. What was interesting is looking back now, I never got the impression that I was being rejected out of any sort of, like, identity consideration, uh, in part because it wasn't until recently that I actually started writing non-white characters. So when I'm writing the Civil War Western, when I'm writing the spy novel, when I'm writing even my science fiction and fantasy, it's all just white characters because that's all I grew up reading. And so it never that's seemed... That's normal. Yeah, exactly. Like that was That was the default. <laughs> and it, so it never seemed as though... And it's, it's interesting, too, listening to other writers tell of their journeys and, you know, the novels that were getting rejected on the basis of you know, editors or agents not being able to relate to a particular character. Like, that was something that I never ran into because I just wasn't writing people who looked like me. The longer the rejection letters got, and they were always, or they seemed more often than not about the craft than anything else, that, that seemed to indicate to me that I was heading in the right direction. And so eventually I would get, I would get letters that were basically like, you know, this isn't really what we're looking for, or I lobbied our, our you know, publishing head really, really, really hard for this, but they, they weren't quite feeling it. 
if there's anything else that you got, send it my way. And like, I would read those rejection letters. If you were looking at my face, you wouldn't be able to tell that I was reading a rejection letter. Yeah. <laughs> I was right. so happy that they were Are you like, really? Because yeah. you do have 15 yeah. more. That's true. Well, yeah. Yeah. Like I, I had other stuff for them, but at the same, you know, it, it is a rejection letter, but at the same time, I'd been doing this for so long that anything that no, wasn't a see, form for rejection me, yeah. was just, I like, okay. I'm, for me, I'm it was always bed. like, it's like when, it's like when somebody rejects or breaks up with you and it's like, I still want to be friends. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> You're the hard cut off. <laughs> yeah. You're I'm like, like, don't even look at nope. me. <laughs> don't talk to me. The street. <laughs> wow. I guess I, maybe I was just that desperate. I've been lonely for so long. <laughs> I also liked it like when they're like, hey, send me the other thing you got. It's like, oh, well, so they like my writing. Yeah. That's right. That's not the issue. Just it's this not, story. Yes, exactly. exactly. And yeah. I also only wrote white characters until Alice. Same, so. yeah. That's really, okay, we're going to get to that. Because that right there is interesting. And I was going to ask you if you ever th considered changing your name. So, <laughs> it, right? well, like. Because your first name and last name is like Nigerian, Nigerian, right? Like, yeah, so, but like I, me, so I think Musa, like, yeah. There was, there was a pride thing, right? And so there was, there I was a member of an online writing workshop way, way, way back in the day that used to be sponsored by Delray Publishing, and it operated on this brilliant point system where to submit a, a short story or a chapter up to about 7,500 words, it costs you two points. And to get points back, you read and review other people's short stories and novel chapters. Really? It was brilliant. Really cool. It was absolutely... Like and it, really cool. it brought all these strangers together into this incredible community that just... There were writers of all levels. Now, at the time, I'm in, like, middle school, and there are writers that are like me that are basically writing just Robert Jordan fanfic, and then there are writers who, at the time, had been published in Asimov's, which is, like, the, the holy grail, and we're all together in this, in this stew, and... On the workshop, I, for whatever reason, had a pseudonym because I just wanted... It was an online... Not like a persona, but like, yeah, I was online, and so I'm like, let me just put on this new identity, right? When it came time to think about the... It's like, whenever I would imagine my book on a shelf, it had to have my name on it. Mm -hmm. I was the one doing all the work. Like, I was the one going through all of this. What is the point if somebody is like, oh, let me see if I can find Toji's book on a shelf, and it doesn't have my name on it? Like, that, that would defeat the whole purpose, the whole purpose of all of this if I, if I ended up publishing under a name that wasn't my own. Um, that was how I, like, it was just a big pride thing for me. It was like, I need people to know that I did this. Like, this is me. Is that why you went from writing, like, uh, white characters to writing characters that speak more to your culture and your background? Because your book mm -hmm. is really based on your Nigerian background, this fantasy. I think, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that that's the book that finally got me onto a shelf. And I think in writing it, I felt a liberation that I hadn't necessarily felt when I, with the other books that I was writing. And it's not you know, the first book that I'd written that featured protagonists of color, but I could tell that when I started writing protagonists of color, on a craft level, I just got better. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was being able to emotionally tap into something that I couldn't necessarily get to with white characters, no matter the situation that they were in. But there was something that happened, that happened, a key that unlocked. I leveled up. Like, that's what it felt like. And 
I think that's reflected in a book like Beasts when you put it up against a lot of the other stuff that I'd written prior, is that there's a level of depth there, at least when I'm looking at it, that I don't see in my previous work as good on a craft level as some of that previous work might be. Yeah. Carolyn, I want to talk to you because you're a literary agent. I am. <laughs> so um, tell me about your agency. How, how many agents are there? Um, there's about seven. It depends who you count because some are part-time and some are like remote. But uh, I think around seven uh, full-time agents and five support staff. And we have a film department too. Um, so I think we're 13 altogether. Yeah. And, and yeah. how many would you say are, are from diverse backgrounds? Not really any. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah, it's something we really want to work on. We've talked about that. It's so rare that anyone ever leaves our agency that we have an opportunity to have a new person. But if we ever do, like, have the opportunity to expand, it's something we're very mindful of, and we've been talking about a lot. So, yeah. at the moment, unfortunately, not very. So, tell me about. Um, I'm really interested in, in in knowing if you, as a literary agent with your other agents, mm -hmm. do you guys have conversations about diversity, yes. diversifying your roster? And, yeah. and uh, tell me a little bit about those discussions. And do you, do you have a mandate? Like, how does that work? Yeah, um, we. I would not say that anyone has ever specifically said what you should have on your list because we're very lucky. We're fortunate enough to take on whatever we find appealing, which is great because in my case, I read really widely. I have a lot of different genres I like, fiction, nonfiction, et cetera. Um, some of my other colleagues might specialize in different things, but we've never specifically said, oh, we need more diverse writers. But I think every agent knows it and wants it and is looking for it. But in terms of the agency, yeah, we have talked about how can we, uh, uh, like, can we work maybe with FOLD, the Liter Festival of Literary Diversity? Could we do something? Could we somehow contribute to this need to diversify and we're just we're working on it we're trying to think of what we can do so it, it's a challenge the company's been around for 20 years but it's small like com not not compared to american agencies i mean sorry it's small compared to american agencies but compared to canadian ones it's one, one of the larger ones we only, there was only about 30 canadian agents there's not that many so agents agents, agents. Oh, agents. wow just, yeah oh, wow so, like, we're pretty rarefied, <laughs> um, and many people go right to the States because there's just more people to query, as right. we, this conversation um, has shown. <laughs> um, but uh, so where was I going with that? Well, just that, you know, like, it's, it's not like there's lots of people becoming agents all the time. So it's hard to make a, a swift change in a direction, but I definitely know it's something we're mindful of and we want and we're looking for. And certainly, if anyone were to apply when we were ever hiring, I know that we would be very keen, but it's just, we're never hiring. <laughs> That's yeah. the problem. How about, you, how about you, Jen? What, what's your, what's mm -hmm. ECW like? Is it diverse in terms of the people that work there? We have about 16 full-time staff. We have some diversity, but not nearly as much as we would like to have. Um, this, is, this is really a problem across mm -hmm. publishing. One of the reasons that that problem exists is that publishing gets its candidates for the most part from publishing schools. Publishing schools are also not very diverse. And it's funny, in publishing, we're like a little blinkered about where we could find talent that is appropriate for what we do. When, in fact, there are so many transferable skills from other industries that could be easily 
you know, it's marketing. It doesn't really matter if you went to publishing school. Like, do you know how to use Twitter? Like, this is, um, <laughs> so what we've actually been doing is trying, not that, of course, we still take on interns and people from publishing schools, um, but we're trying, when we're hiring new positions, to kind of expanding the scope of where those people might come from so that they don't just have to come from these channels, which we know are not offering the kind of diversity we'd like. So a little more open-mindedness in terms of, of where we can find great candidates to work. A lot of people love books, but don't work in books. Right. This is, as an industry, is something that is happening and just needs to happen more. And a lot of people of color love books and sure, love, you know, and want, yeah. Absolutely. Um, Nadia, you, tell me about your journey in terms of getting your school book, um, your, I mean, not your school book, your book Picture published. Book. I, I say school book mm -hmm. because I know you're a teacher mm -hmm. and, um, and, and you, like your, your book is absolutely beautiful. Tell me Thank a little you. bit about Malika and uh, sure. the inspiration. I wrote Malika's costume in 20... 10. Um, I was taking a course at George Brown College. It was writing for children part one with an author named Ted Staunton. So it was an assignment to write a picture book. And I used to write books as a kid and it was kind of thing I, I stopped doing as I got older. I started writing other things and then I went into teaching and kind of took over my life for, <laughs> for a number of years and um, decided that I wanted to start writing I, the story started coming back. So when I had this opportunity to write this story, it brought up things that I love. Um, I love writing about my Caribbean background. Uh, my parents are from Jamaica. Um, I grew up going to Carabana, which is a wonderful, fabulous Caribbean parade and festival in Toronto. Those all came into the story, and I handed it in to my professor. He marked it, and at the time, I was not very... I knew I could write, I had that ability, but I wasn't, I had a hard time calling myself a writer and I, I, I thought he was kind of humoring me a bit. You know, he said it was a good story and I did well on the course. I just, oh, he's just saying that. Um, and then it wasn't until a few years later when um, it was a principal at a school I worked at. She was on, she was working with an organization called PACE and they are um, focused on improving literacy in Jamaica and other communities. So um, for young children, she said, oh, we have this contest coming up. Why don't you send in something? So I said, okay, what do I have? And I took this story out of my, my drawer because <laughs> I have other stories in there and sent it in. Um, and it didn't win the contest that year. But after going through that process, I said, you know what, I think it's ready to, I need to work on this some more. So I was part of a writing group, started workshopping it, and then I submitted it to two publishers. Um, one said yes, and one said no. Um, I met that publisher at a workshop. So that was essentially, I didn't have to go through a huge slush pile. I didn't have agents, or, or I didn't go through that process because in Canada, I would say uh, most children's book authors do not have agents. It's a little bit different in the U.S. I am looking for an agent at the present, but it's a bit of a different process. And each of my books has a completely different story of how they got published. My fifth book comes out in December. It's called Harriet Tubman, Freedom Fighter. I met that editor at a conference in the U.S. And I, I had a few, I have a few nonfiction titles, so some of them contacted me directly and said, you know, it was more like a, wider, a writer for hire 
position, so I love writing nonfiction as well. But each book has a different story. And as I'm working on my young adult novels and my middle grade novel, I'm thinking, okay, this is, I want my career to grow. And I, I see myself going that direction with an agent because I feel like they can get me further towards that goal. You know, when mm-hmm. I often think the romantic, romantically <laughs> about writers doing their craft, it's usually hunched over a typewriter all by themselves and, 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 and typing away. Cigarette smoke wafting. Yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, like a Jack Lots Kerak or something like that. Uh, but in, in talking to a lot of you and just even hearing your stories, mm-hmm. it seems like community is really, really important. Mm-hmm. L. Tell me, how important was it for you to connect with other writers and other people in helping you survive? It's very important. And I know some writers who don't have writer groups or critique partners, like they're fine going it alone. You know, uh, each person is different. Each book is different. And for me, it was before like Twitter and social media became like a big thing. Back when Facebook was like, this is just for college kids, you know, yes. and I... The halcyon days of yore. Right. And I refused. Oh, I refused. They dragged me kicking and screaming. And when I say they, I mean, like, my agent was... The first agent was like, you have to get on social media. I was like, I don't want to people. I, I don't, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so I was dragged kicking and screaming into um, social media, though now I'm on Twitter too much. Um, but... I found that writer's group because I went, they were like the third writer's group that I had tried. And there was like pretentious people in one. There was one guy, oh, what was his name? I can't remember. It's always a guy. I can't remember. <laughs> I want to say, as a guy myself, guy. I can attest to the correctness of he that. He gets around. Statement. He gets around that guy. I don't. I don't remember his name. It'll come to me as I'm like on the plane on the way home. But he always. It'd be like 90 degrees outside, and this cat has on like a turtleneck, a scarf, and a beret. And Sergio. That was his name, Sergio. And I'm like, no, it's not. But whatever. And so I find, you know, you go through, and they would get really upset when you would offer critique, but they love tearing your stuff apart, right? So I actually was getting, yeah, it was like. You got Sergio too? But he literally was like, well, if you want to publish this commercial whatever, go right ahead. And I'm like, you're just mad because I told you your entire first chapter was useless. Like that's just, and I said it nicely, but anyway. So I was at a event at, there's like this big old house called the Writer's Place in Kansas City, and they had like pizza and wine, and it was very hoity-toity. Um, and I'm there, and the C parts, and I spot the only other black person in the room. That feels so good, doesn't and it? And we made eye contact, and we came right toward each yeah. other. And that wound up being um, one of the women in the writer's group that I wound up joining, is because we that's just a thing that happens Um, because I was by myself and I was like this is weird not weird as in not normal because it's very normal to feel weird in those situations as a purple person of color but you just deal with it so I met her and joined the other writers group she was very happy to have me because she was the only person of color in the writers group and now there are two of us Um, you're a group yes (laughs) and I've been with them for 10 years 10 12 it's been it's been a while yeah they were there as I was writing the very first book which 
was about a white boy because that's all I read. So I thought that's what you had to write to be published. I, it never entered my mind that Alice could be a thing. Like it never did for years. Um, and it wasn't until my sister started having kids and you know, they're worried about, oh, am I making sure the baby doesn't starve? Oh, does he have clothes? And meanwhile, I'm like, he, the baby needs to know the Han shot first. Like, that, that, <laughs> that's me, you so know? Important. So I'm raising these little blurds, and um, I realized that I don't want them to go through what I went through in loving science fiction and fantasy as a kid and never seeing myself. And I was like, I'm in a position, I could change that. If just with one book, like they'll be able to hold this book. So that's how I found my writer's group was black person. Yes, <laughs> yours was quite simple. Zoraida, you have written, there's a bit of a sometimes a conundrum uh, that people of color who are writers kind of find themselves in, which is, you know, you're kind of encouraged to write what you know, but then it's just too much you. <laughs> yes. Whoa, too much, or we already have one. Yes. So um, how did you overcome that challenge of that, that sort of that, that being in a, between a rock and a hard place? I think I just wrote about a teenage merman. Like, just did no it. No joke. I, you know, my very first novel that went out to agents, um, I mean, to editors, was rejected. And I still remember these rejections, and I keep them like in a little box, like my petty box, like my mm -hmm. that I return to. Um, Keeps you humble. Yeah, and 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 the rejections were like, "This is really funny, but she's a little unrelatable," or "This is really funny," and like, most of it was like, "You're you're funny, but it's unrelatable," or "We already have a Latina author for the season," because at that in that one. specific yeah. year, a lot of editors had already bought like Jennifer Lopez had a quinceanera book, like it was a whole thing. <laughs> Damn you, J Lo. Yes. <laughs> every time. Every time I get on the six train, I'm just like, "Damn." Mute. Um, sucks because I do live on the sixth train. <laughs> so um, the answer was I was at Coney Island and I started writing about I like I came up with this mythology about how like mermaids exist and they come to Coney Island every fifty years and there's like a championship for the throne and 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 like that book sold within a week and the main character is a, a white guy in Brooklyn so I really had to try to like have like a bunch of white people in Brooklyn yeah um, and. <laughs> And I mean, massive I mean, feat of imagination. Yes. <laughs> I mean, they managed it in Fantastic Beasts. There are no black people in that Harlem. That's very true. Harlem. Wait, it's oh. in Harlem. It's in Harlem, bro. Fantastic Beasts is in Harlem. Listen, we're gonna fight now. J.K. Rowling. Yeah. But so I, you know, that book immediately was sold within a week, and I think that the it was how do you find a teenage boy who turns into have a fish more relatable than like a 15 year old brown girl? And I think that that's like systematic of our industry. And that was in 2008. Yeah. I mean, nobody would ever tell me today that same rejection because we use more coded language. There's just because, you know, 40% of the top of the New York times bestseller list in the United States is like people of color. And Andrew Thomas has been number one for 92 weeks. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that that is gone. Like, oh, all of a sudden we fixed, you know, the problems of publishing. Yeah. It just means that, like, publishers are not allowed to use the same language and they can they can reject you in other ways. Just to reject you for the same reasons. The same reasons, absolutely. Um, and so for me, I, I think that, like, the when I wrote Labyrinth Lost, it was the first time I'd ever written an all 
Latinx cast. And it was just like Tochi, it was liberating because I had always wanted to see magical people that shared something with my background. And so I got to create a whole magical system based on like a fake Latinx witches, Latino witches, you know, uh, and, and for, for the girls who come to my signings and say, wow, okay, you know, this feels like it's real. Um, I appreciate that because I feel like I've given them, I've given my 15 year old like little goth punk self, yes. uh, a book. Uh, the book that she wanted all along. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Carolyn, as a literary agent, tell me about some of the challenges that you face in, in, in trying to, I guess, not just diversify your, your, your roster, but I can imagine that there's only a certain number of people that you can represent well. So how, how, do, you, how do you do that? How do you manage? Do, do you have a limit to say, well, I can only have so many of these types of authors? Like, how does that work for you? Um, well, I should say that the agency has about 400 authors. That's incredible. It's a lot. But, um, yeah. And it is quite a diverse list, really, of our authors, not our agents, unfortunately. But um, So we do have a lot of diversity in our author list, which is nice. There is no code or answer to that because, um, you know, I have an author that writes two books a year that are, he has 17 books under contract since we met five years ago. And then I have another author that will write me a book maybe once every 10 years <laughs> or, and I have one who will do one book cause it's a memoir and that's all she wants to do. So I have at the moment 45 clients. Some of my colleagues have 70 or more. And there's no limit on it, but you do get more and more pressed for time. Your resources are more stretched, and um, you need to be sure that you can do a good job. So for me, I think the main thing is, um, you know, it, it makes it harder for me to read new submissions because that's the stuff that you do outside of your nine to five. You do that in the evenings. You do that on the weekends. And if you've got manuscripts from your existing authors, that's therefore takes precedence over some new people. So it's an actual having to be really, really like proactively saying, I want to read new things and not these things and make and carve out time. And that's what's and that's what I'm trying to do. So, yeah. yeah. You know, when Zariah and I were talking yesterday for the live podcast, I had mentioned that I had read a recent article on CBC that said that the Writers Union of, of, of Canada had put mm -hmm. out. I'm, I'm sure you heard about it. Yes, I did. Um, their survey that said writers are now making 27% yeah. less than they were three years ago, 78% less than 98. You were I can too. I can speak on that because yeah. I actually hosted. Uh, there was a clip of a panel I had hosted with uh, some representatives of the Arts Council. So we, yeah. in Canada, we're lucky to have um, Toronto. Well, we have regional arts councils, we have provincial arts council, and we have national arts councils. And these are basically funding bodies where the government gives money, and they basically decide who it goes to. And I'm I'm blessed to have been a recipient of some of those grants, and some of those grants I've applied to and not got. But um, those do help. But the average, I think the average income for authors in Canada is $9,000 in terms of what they earn from their writing, and that's down, I think, about 30%, 40% from three years ago. It's the reason why authors like myself and others have day careers. Like, we- You're we, hustling. We you hustle. hustle. Yeah. And, you know, the, to be successful at writing, you're, you're writing all the time, you need to be, um, you know, promoting your work as well, um, but also you need to support yourself. Um, some authors have, you know, money, whether they have I would say sugar daddy. <laughs> 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 you know, a patron, yeah. a patron. Yeah. 
Exactly. Some authors are lucky in that sense. Some authors are, you know, J.K. Rowling statuses, and some are able, you know, may have um, inheritances or so forth. But um, I think, especially when you, um, it's important to look at when we're looking at diversity to also think about some of the barriers. And especially being an author of color, um, we do exist in Canada, but we are a small number. And when you look at other barriers, when finances are one of the concerns that becomes an additional barrier for authors as well. But also you get yeah. paid in chunks, yeah. too. Yeah. Like yes. It's not a yes. regular sure. salary. You don't. Exactly. You yeah. get paid regularly. So yeah. it's, yeah, definitely, um, yeah. you know, once a year, twice a year, if your royalties earn out. Mm -hmm. So that kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. And I would just like to add, too, that of those 400 authors, I think there's less than five that don't work. In some capacity, whether they're teaching at a university or they're, you know, teaching the Humber School or they're doing something, they do things to supplement their income, even if they're very high stature writers. So, yeah. Jen, yeah. You're, you're you're nodding your head as well. Is that the case for you for your authors as well? Absolutely, that's the case for almost all Canadian authors. I do feel obligated to say it's not because the publishers are making all the money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> many publishers, especially independent publishers, have a lot of years where they make no money, where they lose money. There are a lot of reasons for that. The publishing economy and like the way it's set up is very, very challenging. The price of books hasn't gone up in like decades, which when you think about inflation is, is a problem. The price of paper, the price of paper mm -hmm. goes up, up all the time. Very recently, this last year, we're facing paper increases and people still are so price sensitive that they will not pay more for a book like that $20 and like not even $20 because on Amazon, you can get that for like 12. So we just to say that it isn't that there's a bunch of fat cats at the top, um, you know, uh, collecting all this money and not paying it out to authors. Um, we very much want authors to have a livelihood and for them to keep writing. That's why we're all here. Yeah, absolutely. Any innovations, anything that you guys are th thinking about ways in which you can make more money and uh, have the authors also making more money? Ebooks, was that a thing? E are people doing it? Ebooks are a thing. Uh, they've kind of stabilized about like, you know, in the, the mid teens percent of the market. Uh, they're not going to, they're, it's not that upward trajectory that everyone for when they're calling about the death of the print book, uh, they expected. <laughs> they've kind of just settled out and that's where they are. And that's cool. We make money off them, but not, you know, scads more or less. Um, audiobooks are an expanding market. Uh, thank you, podcasts, uh, for that. Um, and thank you just the way technology is. And so that's certainly a space that we are doing more in. Um, our publisher actually got one of those wonderful arts grants to uh, help independent publishers produce their own audiobooks so that we weren't just selling the rights to Audible all the time. So we actually kind of have led a group of Canadian publishers through producing and distributing their own audiobooks, um, which can help them get a bigger piece of that expanding market and kind of give them more agency in that market. But in terms of ways to make more money generally, still waiting. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm very curious for just everyone here on the stage, um, particular, particularly the writers. What are you What are you guys doing, or what have you been forced to do to sort of promote yourself? I mean, um, Elle t talked about 
really getting out there on social media. Like you kind of have to be. And, and personally, what are you doing to kind of put yourself out there so that your community knows or just diverse readers know that you're out there? My debut came out in 2012, and I sent myself because for the most part, when you're when you're with any publisher, whether it's small or large, 99% of those authors are not getting sent out on tours or to big events, um, and that's fine because they're you're not expected to you know spend all of your advance on your marketing. Um, you are expected to do the minimal things. And I, I wanted to say that I did everything I possibly could for my books. So, so just in case whatever happens with it, when it comes out, I knew that I did my best. Um, so I sent myself to, uh, conferences and festivals. I made sure I, you know, I would usually that all of that stuff came out of my pocket. Um, and then, so year after year, that's how I made all of my connections and my friends and all of my really close friends author friends have been made through me attending a festival and walking up to somebody and being like, hi, I've collected you. You're my friend now. <laughs> and uh, you have no choice. <laughs> and, and, and I don't regret that at all. And I think that that's how being on panels, people get to know who you are. Uh, if you're on a panel with maybe somebody comes to see a bigger named author, but you're on a panel and they recognize you too. And they're like, oh, maybe you told a funny joke or I like mermaids too. And then they'll buy your book. Uh, so that was for me, it's really hard because for a lot of authors, because I'm an extrovert. So I like peopling and <laughs> you know, I, I like going to an event and going to like the after party and being like, yeah, let's get some wine. You know, so for me, it's, it's a, it's a different experience and not everyone has the emotional energy to do that. And that's totally understandable. And you should, you should do as much as you feel you're capable of doing without putting yourself in uncomfortable situations as an author. And then this year I sent myself on tour with a friend uh, and Tochi came to one of our stops and he like was on a panel with us. So I think that once you make all of those connections, you make things possible. And you then you let your publisher know, and maybe they'll feel guilty and then say, like, oh, we'll cover something because <laughs> you're making all of this effort. If you do all the work and then you approach your publisher, the worst thing they can say is no, but at least you've asked. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I've been... I've been blessed, very, very, very blessed, and there are, are a couple different. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, there and there are a couple different manifestations of that. The first is when Beast Made of Night was very was first announced, Publishers Weekly. I was immediately embraced by the online kidlit community, particularly by the authors of color. Like there were there were innumerable authors who reached out and were like, "Hey, you know, I'm here to support. I'm so excited about your deal. Like, happy to meet you. Anything that you need." I got just like authors coming out the woodwork, particularly on Twitter. That gave me an opportunity to also be invested in their work and their careers and whatnot. So, you know, some of us were sort of coming out at the same level, but a lot of the authors that reached out already had books out, um, you know, sort of willing to school me on certain things and let me know like what to expect, particularly as, you know, a young writer of color or young-ish, I guess, at this point. Um, <laughs> So, so there was that. There was a lot of the the sort of friend gathering that Zoraida was talking about earlier. Now, the other side of me being ridiculously blessed is that I was very fortunate that Razorbill was really invested in Beast Made of Night and Crown of Thunder, and and in what I'm working on now, immensely invested. So. 
they sent me out on tour. Like they sent me to all these different. It was amazing. The hotels that I got to stay in. It Daddy. was just. It was. It was like Daddy. it was amazing. Like literally yeah. living the dream. And that was extraordinary. Like I got when I got to go to Comic Con for the first time, New York Comic Con for the first time as a dude who wrote a thing. Yeah. Yes. Like I was on the other side of the panel you were not table. In line. Yeah. <laughs> like it. I just it blew my mind. And so I've been very 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 fortunate in that. You know there are all these contemporaries that are also at these events and they become friends partly because you know you're on panels with them but also you go out you know for for tapas afterwards with them or or you're hanging out or you're you know you just build that community some of them start out as friends of friends then you get introduced and immediately you start vibing because you're on the same side of the Pusha T Drake beef and like all <laughs> all these magical things happen when you're out doing the promotional stuff and so I'm a little bit of a mix of introvert and an extrovert in that when I'm doing the thing, I am in love. Like, mm -hmm. I'm soaking it all up. I really enjoy doing it, but I also need time to recover afterwards. Mm -hmm. So, like, the month of October was such a huge touring month for me, and sort of going into November, for the entirety of the month of December, I plan on sleeping and playing God of War. Like, that's the extent of my, of my plans. No social engagements, like, dating is gonna be cut off for a little bit. Like, it's literally just going to be me and the PS4. Yeah. Um, but that's all to say that I've been very, very, very fortunate. Like, my situation is nowhere near the norm, but it is, sort of evidence of what it can look like when a publisher has faith in an author. That's right, and invests in the author. Exactly. How about you, Elle? I mean, you don't like peopling. <laughs> I don't you, like peopling. I'm very good at it, though. Okay, you do a great job. Now, okay, first of all, you do a great job of it, so I couldn't tell that you don't like peopling. But I also, I want to I wanna get your, I, I want you to talk a little bit about what women of color writers hear. Yeah. Mm. I, I need to hear that. So you started this hashtag so on Twitter. What happened was another author. Uh, <laughs> what had happened? What was. had happened was <laughs> it's actually not like that. Okay. There's no like. What was going on was that another uh, is a white woman author had started what women writers hear, and people were talking about things like she, people were sharing stories of particularly in like science fiction and fantasy where readers have gone up to them and been like, I'm so glad I didn't know you were a woman, I would have never read your book. Oh, like, that said, yeah. you know, um, it's one of the reasons why I use LL instead of my you know, actual name, which is Latrice. Another reason is because Latrice is a very black name and I took it off and, oh, look, requests. So, <laughs> and, um, so that's one of the reasons why I go by uh, my initials instead of my actual name. But uh, well, we were agreeing with everything that was being said, but then there was like, okay, so it goes a little further. Like there are things that women of color who are authors hear that white women authors don't hear. Like for instance, people will ask, why are you shoving diversity down my throat or down readers' throats? And it's like, I'm not, I'm just black, I just am. <laughs> this is my life. That's right. I mean, it's I'm just literally just, the world. Yeah. Literally living. It's like, this is literally how I walk. Sorry, up. not <laughs> sorry that you, like this. you think my existence is shoving something down your throat. Or like, why do you always have to make it political? And I'm like, I don't make it political, but, um, your founding fathers put black people's humanities in the document that made this country. 
I have no choice. Like, mm -hmm. y'all did that. Y'all made being black political. Like, that's the reason that there's the Electoral College. That's mm -hmm. the reason why there was a whole war. Like, <laughs> we had nothing to do with that. So I would, I would very much like to go about my day without the fact that I'm black being shoved down your throat somehow or being political. Like, I, I didn't plan on doing that. I'm, you took offense, you know, that sort of thing. So we started sharing things like that and how some, uh, some authors would hear that's not Chinese enough or that's not Asian enough or that's not black enough because it wasn't leaning into stereotypes. Things like that or how that's not how black people talk or, oh, you speak so well. You're you know. so articulate. Right? <laughs> and. What happened is I, I actually watered down Alice's blackness when I was querying her. Um, I took out a lot of the way that I speak with my family because she code switches a lot in the book. It wasn't there. And I got an agent. The woman, after two years, who connected with Alice enough was another woman of color. My editor was a woman of color. And I knew that I wanted to work with her on the phone when she said, I can kind of see what you're doing here, and I want to go as far as you want to go with Alice and her blackness. Like, I want to do that. And so I put it back in to the point where my then agent didn't even recognize the story. She was like, Alice has two voices. I don't, what's going on? And I'm like, um, she code switches. One of those voices is not for you to understand. That's just how it's going to be, you know, because um, that's just how it is. So things like that that happen for women of color, for indigenous women, when they write their stories and it's not like a sad reservation story and the person's like, well, that's not authentic. I'm like, first of all, who are you to tell me? You know, I'll fight you. Um, <laughs> Look and I will, you, too. Peopling. Once you're done peopling. Once I'm <laughs> done people. Well, I figure fighting is part of peopling. Yeah, it's totally part it's of a branch of peopling. Yeah. A subspecies of it's peopling. It's my favorite part of peopling. <laughs> um, but that's sort of what happened. And as far as, like, the marketing thing, I'm, I was... I've also been fortunately very blessed because again, I had a woman of color in my corner who really wanted it. Like they knew it was like, I told them from the start, like if you guys whitewash any of this, I'm coming for you. <laughs> like that's the thing, but I never had to worry about it. Like in order, there's the cover is and that's some, a big deal. It that's really is. I didn't have to worry have about it um, because she was there. If she hadn't, if it hadn't been her, I probably would have had more because she did all of the fighting. For the cover, uh, they sent me 12 models to pick from. And so I was like, these are my top four. And they got my top girl. And then I got to go to the cover shoot. And because I was like, no, the cover has to be a dark-skinned black girl. No, you don't understand. Colorism is a thing. I will fight you. Like, <laughs> but I didn't have to. And then when copy edits came around, the copy editor was asking all kinds of questions about African-American vernacular English. This doesn't make sense. This isn't grammatically correct. I had notes up the wazoo, but mostly because my editor had gone in and been like, stat, stat, no, it stays, it stays. It's the character. That's how she talks. It stays. I didn't have to do that. And that's because I had another woman of color who had my back. So that's, that's why diversity, not only in authors and stories, but in the people who are making the decisions is important. 
because if she hadn't been there, I would have had to like pick and choose. Like it would, it could have come down to, do I get my AAVE or do I get my black girl on my cover, yeah. or either. Also, like, like as a writer, it's important to have people like that in your corner because you shouldn't have you shouldn't have to be the one having these conversations. Like, as the author, you do the writing, and like everyone else fights for you. Mm -hmm. So for you, like, it must be exhausting being a black woman in the industry because you're always on the defense, ready to fight people. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's that's emotionally exhausting. It is emotionally exhausting, and it's always a pleasant surprise when I don't have to fight about something. You know what's what's interesting? What you were describing with regards to, you know, the woman of color in the industry as advocate that actually happened to me twice. So Beast Made of Night wasn't originally as Nigerian as it is now. It was actually, the acquiring editor at the time was a Chinese American woman, and we were working off the initial draft, and she was like, you know what, Toji, just like, you know, feel free to lean into this Nigerian thing like a little more. And it wasn't like, oh, you know, Black Panther's getting a lot of buzz, like be super African. Yeah. <laughs> Ride the wave. Ride yeah, the wave. Like it, it, and like that's the thing is you can tell when that's the yeah. thing is like, oh, like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is really big this year. Like, yeah. let's make this super Asian. Like, no, it wasn't that. It was like I can tell there's an authenticity thing that you're, you know, feel free, make this your story. And Beast Made of Night would not exist in its present form were it not for her, another woman of color. I have an upcoming novella with Tor.com, inquiring editor there, another Chinese-American woman. And that story, you know, it deals with all sorts of black American issues like the LA riots and, and you know, the sort of police state in the NYPD, like all this stuff. And there's so much there that's sort of buried beneath the text, that's dynamics that, you know, if you're a reader of color, it's more likely you'll, you'll get or you'll see stuff that doesn't have to be explained, just dynamics that are shown. And I didn't have to worry about an editor being like, okay, so why is it, why are they interacting this way? Or like, why are they talking like this? Or why are they talking like this in this scene and then talking like this in that scene? Like, she just got it. And she didn't even have to be black. Like, just a woman of color, she understood a lot of the th- the issues of, like, systemic oppression that I was depicting just off the rip. And I think that speaks, just like you were illustrating, to the importance of not just having an inclusive slate of writers, but at all yeah. levels in the industry. Even, right. even publicity. Yes. Exactly. Oh, yes. Exactly. How to market your book. How to, exactly. Right. Which is, Nadia, I'd like yes. to talk to you because sure. I, I want to know what the Canadian experience is mm-hmm. like. You know, it's funny because when I was young, if I wanted anything black, it's like, you're going to watch American stuff. Exactly. <laughs> right? That's what I grew up even on. Even commercials. You'd be like, oh, my God. That's what I grew up people, on. Right? Mm-hmm. Like anything. Yeah. So, so set yes. the scene for me for Canada. What, sure. What's your experience been? Well, I grew up in Toronto. I lived in, uh, well, now it's very diverse. I grew up in North Etobicoke and Jane and Finch uh, represent Rexdale. Yes. Um, yes. So it's very diverse. But at the time when I was growing up, it wasn't as diverse. And I look for those books. I was reading Color Purple at age 10. I was reading a lot of the writers that I am now 
now calling colleagues, Rita Williams Garcia. And I'm just so excited to be part of this community. And it was very intentional for me to write stories, black stories, and write Caribbean you know, stories as well. It was, I know I've talked to some authors about worried about being um, pigeonholed and typecast, but there's such an absence of the stories. There's so few. I see the importance of my voice and I am trying to break down. I, I, it's hard not to be an advocate activist because I go into spaces, I go to the US often. This kind of space, this discussion we're having is so rare in Kidlit. So I just have to put that out there and I hope there'll be more discussions like this one. So I, when my book came out, when Malaika's costume came out, I realized that I am kicking down doors for the next person. I want to make it easier for them. So my, I was, uh, I want to say aggressive about my um, promotion, but very intentional. I am blessed with a, a large family. I have, most of my family lives in the U.S., so I had cousins in different cities looking for my books in their local library and their stores. I organized my own tour. I funded my own tour. I contacted bookstores in um, different cities, made sure they, they didn't have my book, they had my book. I created, um, whether I was going, I went to the Essence Festival in um, New Orleans in 2016 uh, with my friends. I made sure I was stopping at the local bookstore, um, Octavia Books in um, New Orleans. Um, they ordered my book, so I went there, you know, signed a book, a couple books, went back to the festival, had a good time. <laughs> got to meet Janelle Monet. I was in Miami. I went to Vona workshop. It's a, um, a lot of my experience of also going to uh, communities of diverse communities of writers in the U.S. Um, so Vona uh, Writers of Color, it was a workshop I attended in Miami. Um, and also I went to Atlanta. I have family there. I arranged, I contacted the local children's bookstore. I had a signing there. I had my family out there rooting. Um, we took over the bookstore on Bank Street in um, Manhattan. I had like 25 family members. One of the staff there was like, how do you... How do you know all these people? <laughs> I said, the Jamaican diaspora is huge. I said, yes. And my they family represents. They bought the books yeah. and they, they let the word be known. When I go to Boston, similar experience. So um, also, I have a childhood best friend in England. I went to go speak at her kids' school. So I, when I was teaching overseas, I made contact with the bookstore in um, Magruti's. It's a, a bookstore chain in the United Arab Emirates. So did signings there. So it's it's a very aggressive, I would get people, you know, authors who've been doing it for so long looking at me like, what, who, where, where do you get the time? Where do you get that energy? Sleep it's, is un yeah. overrated. And it seems like <laughs> but it's it, it was a lot. Yeah. But I, I can't say it's all been wonderful. There've been, bookstores I call and they're like, who are you? And I'm like, really? You know, it, it, I, I, I'm doing a lot. And I think now, I, now I'm, I'm taking, I have to take a little bit of step back just because I want to write other books and it shouldn't only always be like that. I, I went very hard with um, the first book and I think part of the promotion is writing more and your other books people you know, we'll look up your other titles. So that helps a lot. And in terms of just staying authentic, I write Malaika's costumes written in Caribbean Patois in English. My 
picture book that comes out next year is called, well, the title, I won't quite say yet, but it is about Miss Lou, a Jamaican poet, and she was very intentional writing in dialect, so um, in Jamaican patois. So I've had a lot of people come to me and say, I've not read anything like this. I have not read any picture book where I can read this to my, my child and put and use my dialect. And I, I'll read it out loud to students, and kids who are of Caribbean background or if they've grown up in a Caribbean um, enclave or they've been around Caribbean people, they are like, oh, this is in Patois. They, they recognize it and they acknowledge it. And even when I'm in the Middle East or when I'm reading to a predominantly white audience, the kids get the story. So it doesn't make it impossible to understand. So I think it's, um, you know, the good thing is, I think diversity in Killet, it's it's a great conversation. It's been happening in the US. Canada is slowly catching up. And I know that um, I've talked to other, you know, folks in publishing and agents who talked about getting more authors of color, but in terms of just on the ground, I feel like it's definitely something that I talk about with other auth Canadian authors of color, but I, I would love to see more forums like this. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I hope you're taking a break because that's a lot of emotional work. Yeah, that's a lot of a yeah. lot of emotional work. I I I have to do it in waves, and yeah. I'm lucky as a teacher. I you know I get summers off, and I do a lot of that. And slowly, I I think people have been you know I, I'm learning as well. I do ask questions, and one of uh, I I talked to an author, and I'm trying to remember. I think it was Tanana Reeve too, and she just said you know just write, write, and and that. Writing, thankfully, is how I relax, but it's also how I work, too. So keep writing, and that is another form of promotion for yourself Amazing. as well. Amazing. Mm -hmm. I also just want to say that uh, I think that is remarkable that your book has patois, because mm -hmm. when I was, I mean, I'm of Somali descent, mm -hmm. but... Oh, for sorry, I I'm trying to write a Somali character into one you? of my yeah girl so, name it after yeah. me yeah okay name <laughs> it after me girl okay we'll talk after all right all right all right <laughs> okay <laughs> CBC won't be happy with that I think that's okay. I think I'm breaking some journalistic <laughs> boundaries but I, but I, mm -hmm. but I do want to say mm -hmm. that that is remarkable because when I was growing up. You know, Jamaican kids were told to talk proper. Mm -hmm. uh, still, I like yeah. That's such I was a growing. Big I grew deal. up with that as well. That's mm -hmm. such a big deal to celebrate. Mm -hmm. You know, as a small black child, to see black kids on the cover of books. Mm -hmm. I don't. It's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. And, and also, you. I just wanted to also add the story of Malaika's costume and the the sequels. It's an immigration story. So I think that's another way people relate to it. Um, I've had adults read it and say, "This is how I came." And there are not very many immigration stories, but also the unique way of how Caribbean people have immigrated to the U.S., to Canada, and to the U.K. Often they come without their parents. Often the parent has to leave the child. It's a story that's repeated itself in my own family. So I think it's really important that kids can say, oh, this has happened to me too. How do I now find my way in this world? And the stories can help. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Jen, I have to ask you, uh, you know, as a, uh, as a publisher, what kinds of conversations do you have with people that want to be published by you? And this is not necessarily like in your office, but if you go to festivals and things and people approach you, uh, what advice do you give to just burgeoning authors in general that want to break in? 
Yeah, so uh, Caroline and I gave a workshop yesterday, which was like very much the brass tacks of that, of ways not to annoy me when I'm tired and I have too much work to do. That's <laughs> what I call that talk. Um, but in generally, in general, it's to find whatever the thing is that you're passionate about, whatever story it is that you want to tell, and then to look for ways to develop that. So that can be writers groups, and that's a great way of, of find, connecting with other people. That can be going to festivals and talking to people who have made it and trying to get their experience. And there's the, the one of the beauties of the internet, um, for all of its drawbacks, is that there are great sources of information on how you can make your book proposal better, on on ways to develop your writing. And so there is, you don't have to go to the library and get the writer's market anymore. You know, it, like it, 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 it's out there. Kids um, are so spoiled these days. It's so easy. They I'm will never you, know Google. getting that manuscript back in the mail oh and your self-addressed stamped envelope. Oh my oh. goodness, self-addressed stamped envelope. Yes. That's very... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> still occasionally a thing, um, <laughs> though I wish it wasn't. Yeah, so, and also there are new ways to connect with publishers. So uh, one of the ways that we try to make ourselves accessible besides accepting, for example, books that are not agented um, and trying to reduce those barriers is to go to festivals, to sit at that table and talk to people, to participate in like Twitter pitch things like DV Pit or Can Lit Pit so that literally like someone can tweet me my email address is on our website, which some people are like, I would sooner die than have my email address on the website. But because I do want people to be able to to reach out to me and and done in the right tone, I'm happy to provide advice and feedback. Um, you know, every submission doesn't get the the long email because I would never be able to edit books that I had actually I'm actually publishing, but trying to find different ways to connect and kind of gather that information. And then, of course, like the biggest thing is just to write and to keep writing yeah, and to read and to keep reading. Yeah. Um, How about you, Carolyn, as a literary agent? Yeah, I think that's really true. You've got to, the, the main thing is it has to be good. Very, very good. <laughs> and doing your research. And I mean, we try to make ourselves as available as possible. I know it's hard and it's a bit opaque, like what we do and stuff. But um, I feel like it's never really been easier to figure out which agencies are accepting and who's doing what and how and what their guidelines are. It's just very easy to Google and find out and very easy to send an email. And so um, I think being patient is important because people are just so overstretched, as Jen was saying. And um, I get like five or six queries a day. And I mean, I'll, I'm not going to lie, I don't read all of them. I read a bit and then I know that it's probably not for me. Like there's just not enough hours in the day, but sometimes something does catch your eye and you read the whole thing and I have to say about 80% of my clients I have got from unsolicited submissions so it's quite a lot yeah I think you just have to keep trying and just perfecting your craft and then it will happen for you just persist. <laughs> just persist. I think persist. that is definitely a theme. <laughs> Write 15 yeah. books and then your 16th yeah. one will yeah, be published. Exactly. I mean, like, that is a t- an amazing story. <laughs> I love that. I'm just trying to get the things on my small list, my to-do list done. <laughs> I love how you're yeah. like, I Let got better. 15 I didn't books. make the other books better, but I personally yeah. got better I until I wrote a new one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> love it. I, I just wanted to also mention about the own voices hashtag as well. Um, and it's really important that um, we create spaces for authors of color to write 
um, as well, because I think, especially in Canada, um, I know um, African Canadians that uh, Elliot, who's been in the US for the last 20 years, huge advocate for um, diversity in children's literature. She's done a survey of the books about black people um, and by black people for the last 20 years or so in Canada, and most of them are not written by black not Canadians. And it's, it's the US. same in the US. So it's really important that we also get a bigger picture of what these communities are like by authors from those communities. Yeah. Well, I mean, on top of that, like you have recently, I don't know, I think it was like PBS. They were like, who is, uh, like America voted, and the most beloved novel is To Kill a Mockingbird. And me and everybody who I know in the community is a black person is like, who they ask? They didn't ask us. We hate that book. Like, but you had to like, you have to, it was a book, it's taught in schools and you have to look at like who Content. decided, who wanted yeah. to have that book. Like it's, it, on the surface, it seems like this great story, you know, this girl and she's doing this good thing. And then the rest of us is like, well, that's so white savior story. I, yes. I want nothing to do with that. You know, so it depends on like the lens of who's reading it and who's versus who's writing it as well. And like, also, and also just very briefly to, to jump on sort of a lot of the good stuff that's been said, um, the novelist Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who mm -hmm. wrote Half of a Yellow Sun, Purple Hibiscus, yes. Americana, she speaks a lot and very eloquently about the dangers of the single story. Mm -hmm. And she's speaking primarily to the context of stories told about you know Africa and Africans, but the point goes much wider than that, which is if there's a single story or a single type of story that gets told about a particular people, um, that's dangerous, even if it is by somebody from that community. If they're like the spokesperson for that community, um, if they're the only one that's able to tell stories about that community, that gets in the way of exactly the type of empathy that Zoraida is talking about because communities aren't a monolith. You know, demographics aren't a monolith. Everybody's experience is different. And if you're if you're learning about you know, somebody who in any way, shape, or form is different from you, and you only have one source text for it, then that, like, that sort of cuts you off from being able to truly, truly, truly see others from that community as fully realized human beings. That's how you get people saying, oh, well, this story isn't black enough because exactly. it's not set in, like, South Side Chicago or something where people who aren't from that neighborhood think that, like, like that's what you have to do in order to be black, not realizing that there's a lot of black people in all of Chicago, in all of, you know, the entire United States. We're not just in Atlanta. We're not just in, you know, I mean, we're everywhere. It, and it's also how, like, people get mad when you want to have black elves in Lord of the Rings as if black people were only invented in time to be slaves. Yeah. You know. Just in time. We Convenient. couldn't have been in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Yeah. How dare. Uh, yeah. Zora Neale, Zora Neale Hurston. But I want you guys to know that, you know, as we're walking out, you guys may be able to talk to some of the panelists, but please let's give them a, a round of applause, shall we, for their time? Thank you so much. We have to catch a flight. Yeah. Let go. Go. Run. Run. Run Thank, you. Thank you so Thank much, you everyone. So much. Thank, Thank you. Thank you guys immensely. We hope you enjoyed this program. Please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. If you're an emerging writer interested in receiving our open calls for submissions or being invited to any events, please join our newsletter list by emailing us at info at diasporadialogues.com with subscribe in the subject line. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>